All right, hopefully you're there in your Bible or on your device, Isaiah chapter 6. The topic, Isaiah has his famous encounter with God in which the seraphim takes a burning coal from the altar and touches his lips. The title of the message, Hot Lips. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. It's, um, it's a marvelous thing, Lord, that you have communicated with us uh, your love and your grace, your mercy. We appreciate you and, and thank you for the opportunity to be here in a place where you promised you would walk among us. Uh, during a time, Lord, when we have gathered as the body of Christ and as the temple of the Holy Spirit. We always want to pray for unbelievers who may be here, Lord, or who may hear these words someday. Lord, we pray that they would be struck by the wonder of your forgiveness and that grace, Lord, would open their hearts to receive you. So, Lord, take control. In Jesus' name we pray, and those who agreed said, amen. You've heard of the prodigal son, but have you heard of the profligate son? In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, we are introduced to him. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of the father or the voice of the mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gate of his city. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious, he will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away from uh, the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. If your kids think your discipline is harsh, read this to them. Does gluttony carry the death penalty? That's scary. That's the thing I got out of that. Man, that's rough. No, it doesn't. The word can be translated profligate. It means utterly and shamelessly immoral or dissipated, thoroughly dissolute. Some other words for dissipated and dissolute are debauched, decadent, licentious, promiscuous, lecherous, wanton, lustful, libidinous, lewd, unchaste, wild, unrestrained, depraved, degenerate, corrupt. You get the idea. Definitely not talking about obesity. We're talking about somebody who's really, really out there. In our text today, God tells Isaiah to make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. It should startle us to hear uh, that from God, what happened to his desire that all men are saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, we saw in chapters 1 through 5 that Judah utterly and shamelessly, immorally and dissipated, thoroughly dissolute nation. They had passed a point of no repent as a nation. Isaiah is going to model a prodigal for us. He confesses his sins and rededicates to God. If Isaiah thought of himself that way, so should we. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, seek the Lord as if you were his prodigal. Number two, seek the Lord before you become profligate. Let's talk about prodigals in verses 1 through 8. The parable of the prodigal son is found in the Gospel of Luke. A younger son asks his father for his inheritance early and then squanders it all in a distant country on riotous living. He comes to his senses and returns to his father's house. 
he is welcomed back by his father with open arms. Is it going too far to think of Isaiah and therefore ourselves as prodigal? We may not be drunkards wallowing in a pig pen, but until we see Jesus, we continue to struggle with our unredeemed flesh. We do not mature as Christians unless we become increasingly sensitive to our sin. William Beveridge wrote, I cannot pray except I sin. I cannot preach, but I sin. My very repentance needs to be repented of, and the tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. That really struck me, especially where he says, my repentance needs to be repented of. It's a reminder that no matter how uh, close we get to the Lord, how much we mature in the Lord, as long as we're in these unredeemed bodies, nothing we do is going to be perfect. And so even when I repent, I find years later that I haven't repented fully because God keeps taking me deeper and deeper into how sin has permeated my, my, my thoughts. And it's to free us from that. Don't wallow in the truth. A lot of times people read that kind of stuff and they say, oh, you know, the Christian life, it's, it's like being baptized in lemon juice. You know, you're all sour all the time. No, God tells you that so you can be set free. Alexander McLaren wrote, embrace in one act the two truths, your sin and God's infinite mercy in Jesus Christ. And so that's the idea this morning. Isaiah will be brought to woe seeing his sinfulness. The effect is an eager, bold desire to serve the Lord. He'll say, woe is me, but then he'll go out and minister for the Lord as they, uh, after they conduct their business in heaven. And so verse 1, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Uzziah reigned 52 years. He was a good king until he wasn't. He decided one day that he would act as a priest. He tried to light incense in the temple, which was a uh, duty and privilege specifically for the priest. Before he could, he was struck with leprosy. The account in 2 Chronicles reads, When he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord. Weakness is your strength. It humbles you to seek the Lord's help at all times. You might be familiar with the story of Jacob wrestling with an angel all night. Gino's teaching through Genesis on Wednesday nights. He said, Jacob had incredible vigor, but if he was going to get to Israel, become Israel, to have his name changed, he could have no self-sufficiency, and so the Lord grabbed him. When you think you are strong, physically or spiritually, you are wrestling with God. You don't want to admit that you're not as strong as you think you are. Tap out and yield to the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is only when you know that you are weak that you are strong. Let the Lord do it. He wants to use you. You need to be bold to go for him, as we'll see with Isaiah. But, um, you know, this idea that, that you contribute anything or that, you know, God sees you and sees how gifted you are in a worldly sense, right? And then says, well, I, you know, I, I have to have that. And so, you know, you, you may have gifts and talents that the, the Lord can use and you should use them for him, but he doesn't find you because you're so gifted. 
and, and say, well, you know, I, I need to have a person like you. I've told you many times, um, you know, sometimes you need to look at a person and just shake your head and say, I, I don't understand how God could use you. Uh, you know, you're whatever. I mean, you, you're not the guy I, I, I would choose. And um, God chooses some really weird people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? And puts them together in these strange relationships. But uh, it's to show that it's, it's him. He's doing it. You know, the, the, when the disciples, after the Lord rose from the dead and the disciples were ministering, the Jews were, were struggling with the idea that how, how are these guys doing this? All, all they were were ignorant guys that were with Jesus Christ. And that's all you and I are ever, uh, that's a great compliment, I should say, to you and I. You and I are ignorant men and women who have been with Jesus Christ. And um, you can't argue with that. Uh, and so uh, be weak so that the Lord can be your strength. The first five chapters occur after Isaiah was called and commissioned. We needed to see Judah as profligate. Otherwise, God's message for Isaiah seems a harsh overreaction. National transfer of power can be a turbulent time. Judah's throne might be empty, but God was seated on his far greater, more glorious throne in heaven. Probably you should read Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 13, before you watch the news every time, because it reminds you that what you're going to see uh, does not cancel out the fact that God is on his throne in control, his plan unfolding. As the world seems to be blowing apart, uh, the Lord keeps it on his schedule. Nations rage against one another and God, he remains in charge. His mighty providence, without violating man's free will, keeps this romance of redemption on track to the consummation of the age. Isaiah was transported to the temple in heaven. No one can see God in his fullness Nevertheless, a lot of Bible characters are said to have seen God. That's because he can accommodate us when necessary and appear to us in a form that doesn't kill us. Verse 2, above it stood seraphim. Each, had, uh, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. This would be a great find for birders. You know, if you go birding and are looking for that lifetime bird. My wife and I like to bird. Nevertheless, uh, it says here, and one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. A lot of our songs come out of this passage, right? Several songs, it's great. Seraphim are an order of angel. This is their only appearance in the Bible, and it's a doozy. Isaiah's description makes them sound weird, but like everything in heaven, they are intensely beautiful. Why they cover their faces and feet, we are not told, so we won't speculate. Heaven and the spirit realm are sort of a melting pot of spiritual beings, good and evil. The ones we know some things about from the Bible are seraphim, cherubim, archangels, angels, principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, wicked spirits, thrones, dominions, spirits in prison, demons, and seducing spirits. There's something called a divine council. We know, too, that there are horses in heaven. There are the four horsemen in Revelation, often called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Jesus returns on a great, a great white steed. Uh, reverting to my baby language, a great white steed. 
We accompany Jesus on horses when we come back with him. And don't forget, all dogs go to heaven. So you've got at least those beings. The threefold repetition of holy and then God using the plural word us are consistent with the doctrine of the Trinity. They, they, they don't teach the doctrine here, but they are consistent with the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Stated differently, God is one in essence and three in person. These definitions express three crucial truths. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Each person is fully God. There is only one God. Uh, the Trinity is a basic, fundamental Christian doctrine. You can't get to heaven without believing in the nature of God as a, a triune being, but it cannot be explained. It is presented, not explained, and there are no illustrations for it. People say, oh, I have an illustration, water. Water can be, you know, liquid, uh, frozen liquid steam. Yeah, but it can only be that at, the, at one at a time, right? And that's a heresy. It's called modalism. That's like saying, well, God can be God, then he can be Jesus, then he can be the Holy Spirit. And so water's a bad one uh, because you'd have to be an ice cube, liquid, and steam all at once for that to work. And so don't try to find an example. It's the teaching of the Bible, and that's good enough. Verse 4, the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah smelled, he saw, he heard, and he felt these physical phenomena. There were doorposts, a structure, smoke. Heaven is tangible, it is permanent. Abraham and the other patriarchs lived on earth looking towards it. We are going to retire there. Now, I don't know where you're going to retire on earth. No one seems to want to retire in Hanford although some people do, uh, but we are headed beyond wherever you lay your head down in retirement to our permanent home in heaven. Verse 5, so I said, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Uh, if, if Isaiah says this of himself, the prophet of the Lord, how much we, and maybe even how much more, we could say it of ourselves. A friend of mine, Pastor Terry Michaels of Calvary Austin, tweeted, ministry is the only vocation where feeling qualified becomes a disqualification. If you're ever, if you're ever interviewing somebody for a ministry position and say, uh, do you feel qualified? And they say, yes, they're disqualified. That was what I was talking about earlier. That you, you can't be qualified to serve the Lord. He has to do the work through you. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're qualified by being a Christian and doing whatever the Lord tells you to do. Embrace your insufficiency do anything, uh, to do anything apart from grace. Just, again, don't morbidly dwell on what a sinner you are. You are a believing sinner justified by God. When you come to the cross of Jesus Christ and receive the Lord into your heart, you are a, uh, a sinner who is justified. And then the Lord works on your life throughout your lifetime until we go to be with him and receive our perfect, glorious body uh, and we can't sin anymore. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. 
The tabernacle in the wilderness and later Solomon's temple and then still later Zerubbabel's second temple were modeled after one in heaven. There are two altars which this coal could have come from, the golden altar standing in the holy place called the altar of incense and the brazen altar standing at the very entrance of the court and called the altar of the burnt offering. Whichever one it was, the altar symbolizes the provision which God had made in the temple in its services for sin. One commentator said, the live coal expresses the ideas of atonement, propitiation, satisfaction, forgiveness, cleansing, and reconciliation. Isaiah is left in no doubt when the seraph explains, behold, this has touched your lips and your, uh, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. A substitute was sacrificed on the altar so that God could cleanse Isaiah. God did all the heavy lifting. Uh, and, and of course, with Jesus, same thing, the fulfillment of all those sacrifices. God did all the heavy lifting. All we do is believe. And so I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. John Gill wrote, This shows the true nature and effect of an application of pardon, gives a man freedom and boldness in the presence of God, stimulates to a ready and cheerful obedience to his will, and engages him with the utmost alacrity in his service. And so again, Isaiah doesn't, he doesn't hang around morbidly. He says, hey, you've touched me, so let's go. I'm ready to go. What, what is it you need, Lord? You didn't bring me here just to witness this. And so Isaiah has this sense of, of, of uh, wanting to minister. Now, Isaiah is a prodigal in this sense. And I admit I've never thought of him in that way, but it, wouldn't, uh, but it would seem he thought of himself that way, confessing his sin, and more than that, identifying with a profligate nation. And so Isaiah acts like he has to come back. Daniel does the same thing in, in, uh, when he's about to receive the vision from Gabriel. He identifies with the people, and we'd say, well, Daniel, you haven't done anything wrong. But they knew in their heart, they were, they were these kind of guys we're talking about who kept getting in touch with uh, you know, their need for repentance uh, and repentance from their repentance, as the one guy said. I mean, they, they wanted to really walk with the Lord in a close way. Christians are prodigals. We can take for granted our spiritual inheritance. We can leave our first love. We can be asleep in the light. We sometimes don't control our tongue. I should probably say we sometimes do control our tongue because most of the time we're not. We can be hearers of the word, not doers. We need from time to time to stir up our gifts. I would put all of that in the category of a Christian prodigal. We've, gone, we've moved from where we were. We've left our first love and Jesus says, come back, repent and do the first works. Get back to where you once belonged. In verses 9 through 13, seek the Lord before you become profligate. Now, profligate is not a deeper state of prodigal. A prodigal is a son or daughter, a believing sinner who has been declared righteous. A profligate is an unbeliever, a sinner not born again into the family of God who needs to be evangelized. When we say seek the Lord before you become profligate, we are warning unbelievers that there will come a time when it is too late for you to be saved. It is always too late after you die. And so if you die in your sin, having never received Christ as your Savior, 
then it's over. There's no second chance. There's no purgatory. Those are all, that's a man-made thing to try and, um, well, actually it's a deception. It's a man-made thing, but it's a deception to try and get people not to think about the Lord. Hey, if I could spend a thousand years in purgatory and end up in heaven, why live a holy life now, right? I mean, it couldn't be any worse than a kidney stone, that thousand years, and then I wake up in heaven. After you die, there's a judgment. There's no second chance. And we'll see here, too, that it can also be too late for you before you die. It was for Judah, because God had finally cut them off as a nation and said, that's it. There's no more chance of repentance. So verse 9, he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Despite God's powerful word, they remained utterly and shamelessly immoral or dissipated, thoroughly dissolute. Unrepented sin dulled them until they became completely deaf and blind. John Fish writes, it is entirely in keeping with the character of God and it is the repeated teaching of scripture that those who are depraved and have continually hardened themselves to the light of God may justly be cut off by God and excluded from further light. The Apostle Paul warned of this in the first chapter of the book of Romans. If unbelievers continue to ignore God's gracious attempts to save them, Three times he said, God will give them over. J.B. Phillips says, they gave up on God, so God gave them up. The message version is straightforward. So God said, if that's what you want, that's what you get. And so as people continue to sin against the knowledge of God, him always reaching out and reaching out and reaching out, it's possible to get to a point where God will give them over and say, you can have what you want. And it's a, it's, it's a life and an eternity without me. You've got it. Unbeliever, I beg you to listen carefully. Continue to resist God drawing you to himself. And if you die in your sins, you will be consigned to an eternity of punishment, conscious torment in the lake of fire. And there could come a time before you die when you can no longer repent and be saved. Most of Judah were examples to us. And so if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to know that you might not have any time. And you should respond to the gospel. And the more you hear the gospel and harden your heart to it, the more difficult it becomes for you to believe. Not everyone in Judah was dull to God. By his providence, God always has a remnant of believers. Verse 11, then I said, Lord, how long? Isaiah could only ask this if he knew and believed that God would keep his promises to the Jews. It was not a matter of if he would keep his promises, but when. Isaiah didn't say, how can you do that? What are you thinking? He said, okay, how long is that going to last? Because he knew that they were going to get back uh, what uh, was taken from them. Now, the word Israel can be found about 2,500 times in the Bible. It occurs 73 times in the New Testament. In all but three of those occurrences, it refers to national ethnic Israel, to Jews. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, the church is never called and is not a spiritual Israel or a new Israel. 
The term Israel is either used of the nation or the people as a whole or the believing remnant within it. It is never used of the church in general or of Gentile believers in particular. And so we, we hit this all the time. It's just one of those uh, planks that you need to have in your you know, uh, understanding that uh, there are people who confuse the church with Israel and Israel with the church. And once you head down that road, prophecy will never make any sense to you. Christians tend to think of the Lord dealing one-on-one with individuals. That's true. But he also deals with nations. Today, Israel as a nation is blinded, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But God is still saving individual Jews, according to the book of Romans. And so it's hard for me to understand, uh, and maybe for some of us, but God deals with nations. And you say, well, aren't they filled with individuals? Well, yeah. Those individuals can get saved, but at some point, God says to nations, that's it. Look at the nations who came against Israel. God would raise them up and allow them to prosper so they could be tools of discipline to his people Israel, uh, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. But then God held them accountable as nations. And he says, hey, I'm going to wipe you out now because of what you've done and because of what you're doing. And so God has this uh, nation idea. Then the Lord said, how long? Then I said, how long, Lord? And he answered, until cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. The punishment would last until the land is utterly desolate. And you can go through these two verses and notice the emphasis on land. The cities and houses upon the land would be abandoned. Citizens would be removed far away from the land, and most of the land would be forsaken. This would occur in the 6th century when King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah three times. The third time was really bad. He destroyed the temple, ruined the land, and took captives. What we call the Babylonian captivity that ensued would last 70 years. Why 70? I'm glad you asked. The Jews were supposed to observe a Sabbath day every seventh day of the week. That's pretty obvious from the Gospels. But what's not so obvious, they were supposed to observe a Sabbath year every seventh year, not planting their crops, letting the land rest. Every 50th year was Jubilee. Besides not planting their crops, They were to release people from their debts, releasing all indentured servants, and in return, uh, rather return property to those who originally owned it. This wasn't some brilliant agricultural strategy. It was all about trusting Yahweh. It took faith to let your rich farmland lay fallow. You were relying completely on God. You had to, you know, hope that in that sixth year, You had enough to last you through that seventh year when the land was going to not be worked. I like to point out how silly people have made Sabbath keeping. I ran across a crazy workaround that the rabbis came up with. So you you couldn't farm every seventh year. Your land was to lay fallow. So they devised something they called the heter mekira, It is a sales permit which allows Jews to temporarily sell their land to non-Jews for the Sabbath year so that they may ignore it. 
so-called Sabbath keepers always seem to find a way to keep it without keeping it. So you understand? They said, the Lord says, now, you're not going to farm in the seventh year. And so they said, well, you know, what if we didn't own the land? <laughs> and so they fake sell it. They fake sell it to, to Gentiles, and they continue to farm. And so, you know, um, we're not against Sabbatarians necessarily, but... No one can keep the Sabbath with these weird rules, uh, you know, because they, they have all these workarounds for, for why they're doing what they're doing. The duration of the punishment was decided by the years they owed the Lord by not obeying the Sabbath of the land. God had warned Israel that if they did not do that, he would remove them from the land and enforce it himself. And that's what he does. He says, well, you owe me 70 years, uh, and so you're going to be in captivity, and your land is going to lay fallow for all the years that you owe me. God wanted for the nation to enjoy him and his promises, to rest in him. He never meant for this to be a burden. The leaders made it hard and heavy. Uh, there's no parallel to it, but imagine if, if we did this today and say, hey, uh, we're coming up on the Sabbath year. Nobody's going to do anything, Right? No, no farming. We're just going to hang out and, and, and just rest for a year. Wow. That'd be awesome, right? I mean, that, if your boss said, you, you've got a year's rest coming to you, that'd be great. And, and God wanted it to be like that, but they would have to trust him, right? They would have to trust him to provide for them. And they said, yeah, no, we're, you know, you're the God who gave us manna in the wilderness and quail until it was coming out of our nostrils and water from a rock, but I don't know if we can trust you for a year. And so we're going to just keep farming. God's desire that we enjoy our relationship with him. One of the early creeds begins, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. One commentator said, what could be more liberating, more thrilling, more amazing than that the God who made the universe would come to you, a hopeless sinner, and point you to the death of his son, where sins are paid for, and then say to you, your first and greatest obligation is that you enjoy supremely what is supremely enjoyable, namely me and my son in the power of my spirit. And so that's the idea. God says, I, I desire to bring you joy and to enjoy our relationship. And the Jews, and carries down to us, it's like, I don't know if I can trust you. I, I, need, you know, I need to do this. I know you told me not to, but I'm going to do it anyway because I don't trust you. Verse 13, a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down so the holy seed shall be its stump. A small portion, a tenth, I'm not sure if this is an absolutely accurate measurement or probably more of a symbolic measurement. These are believers they would be spared. Daniel and his three friends are an example. Not spared from difficulty, but they would be spared uh, to go on as a nation and as believers. This tenth which survived the exile is compared to a tree. The tree will be cut down so that only the stump remains, but from this stump comes the remnant. Have you ever have a stump you can't get rid of? You cut it down and stuff keeps growing out of it. I had a guy tell me one time, this is a real environmentalist, uh, he said, drill a hole in it and pour motor oil in it. It'll kill it. And everything near it for a million years, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, 
I was just going to make a joke about the fact that it worked, but I, I, I never did that. I, it finally died. I, I finally rotted away. But I mean, it's like every, you know, you're ever through with the clippers all the time, and they've got these chemicals they use that, you know, that don't work. And anyway, I don't have any more stumps, so don't come up with, with uh, your remedy. I don't need to know that. God is often criticized for the wholesale slaughter of various nations in the promised land. Joshua was instructed to kill everyone, including animals. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a headline right now uh, that will disgust you. And I'm not going to comment on it, uh, but if you have small children, you might want to cover their ears so that you don't have a conversation this afternoon. But I think it puts into perspective uh, what we're talking about. Okay, you ready? This just came out this morning. Gino shared it with me. Spain decriminalizes sexual relations with animals. Okay. So, these are the kind of people they were dealing with in Canaan. Absolute, total profligates. Just immoral to the core. Uh, God, for 400 years, had been reaching out to them. They knew of the Lord, because when they got to Jericho, their first stop, the citizens in Jericho were terrified of the Israelites because they had heard about what they were doing, and they knew God was with them, the God of the Bible, uh, you know, the God of uh, Moses. And, and, and on account of that, they were terrified, but they wouldn't repent. Could they have repented? Rahab did. Rahab the harlot. She told the two spies, hey, listen, I, I, you know, I want to follow the Lord. And they spared her, but they didn't spare the others. They killed everything. F.C. Jennings wrote, it seems like a strange and sad thing that the prophet Isaiah is sent to a blind, deaf, hard-hearted people, yet we may safely say at once that our God never hardens the heart that would not be softened. He does not blind the eyes of those who would see. Was Isaiah's ministry a failure? Remember, we talk about these guys like Jeremiah, and we say, man, they had no converts, or it seems like they failed. Well, quite the opposite. His ministry was to go and have no response, right? I mean, think about it for a minute. God told Isaiah, your ministry is to go talk to these people and have no response to your words. However, a remnant would be saved so that the Savior could be born. You know, when we talk about Israel being spared and a remnant saved, this is important because Jesus came through that nation. And so if you wipe out all the Jews, then there is no Savior, And so there was a remnant. And the dull, deaf, and blind response to his message was a witness that they were profligates deserving judgment. Other nations who maybe had, you know, knew a little bit about Israel and a little bit about Judah and a little bit about what Moses had said would say, hey, the fact that this guy Isaiah is preaching to them and they are not hearing it, not seeing it, not repenting, means that God is invoking what he said in Leviticus and he's going to judge them. Isaiah spoke to them plainly. At one point, the Jews say, he speaks to us as though we were babies. But they didn't understand. They couldn't understand because of their sin. They willfully rejected the word, so God gave them over as promised. Is it too late for the United States as a nation? Well, that's going to answer itself as time goes on. A case is easily made that our nation deserves God's judgment, right? Right? Or to put it another way, it would be no surprise if 
God judged the United States. But we don't have an Isaiah. There's, there's no Isaiah that's going to be raised up and say, now, you know, you know this is happening, uh, and, and it's definite judgment. We've got a bunch of people who, you know, like to say things like that, but we, we don't know what, what the plan is for the United States. Isaiah received a truly awesome commission, but so do we. Jesus told us to go with the gospel, making disciples until he comes. Plain and powerful, the gospel transformed lives in every nation, people, tribe, and tongue. And so, is there a place for the United States in prophecy? Is, are we going to continue? Uh, we don't know, and, we, and uh, we just have a different commission, right? Our commission is to preach the gospel and make disciples of all men. Now, if our nation experienced revival then God would relent, would he not? Because he promises that in Jeremiah, and we see it with Nineveh and Assyria and all that. You've been following this uh, revival, what they may be calling revival in Asbury, and uh, I, I think that's the pronunciation, in Kentucky at the university there. They, they're still have, they started a week ago Wednesday, because uh, I mentioned this last Sunday, and they're just having continuous meetings. That nobody will leave. People keep coming in and out. I do have some bad news. We were reading it back there. It really grieves me. The administration of the college is moving, is starting to shut it down so that they can get back to regular classes. And so they've printed a schedule, and they said, here's when you can be here, here's when you can't, here's the age group that can be here, and here's who can't. And they're, they're starting to put some rules to it and, and all. And it's, uh, you know, maybe there's more to the story, but it's very sad. Uh, now, you, you can't stop a move of God by, you know, with your knucklehead ideas, but uh, it, it's, uh, it's crazy what's going on sometimes, and uh, it's unbelievable. And if you're on social media, and, and maybe you're here and you fit into this group, I mean, so, I, I'm, you know, we can talk, but so many people are uh, critical of what's happening there. All that's happened so far is that people won't leave the building and they want to keep praying and repenting and singing. It's not, a, it's not a Holy Ghost revival where people are jumping out windows and falling in the spirit and, you know, doing things that, that could be considered odd or strange. It's just that people feel the presence of God there. Maybe it's not a revival. You'd have to define revival, I guess, right? But, but it's happening, and let it happen, right? I mean, sure, you sent your kid to Asbury College or university to get an education, but... He can miss a few classes, right, while God is doing a work in the auditorium. I mean, come on, let's, uh, man, I want to go there myself and punch somebody in the face, but that's not very, not very revivally. Richard Watson explained, not only is there the word and the ministry of it, but a special influence of the spirit as distinct both from one and uh, as the other. There is that operation of the spirit by which men are put into a capacity to repent when they hear the word. And so that's what we're to be about. Uh, hey, get as politically active as you want. Do these other things, you know, that uh, the Lord maybe puts on your heart. But we're to preach the gospel wherever we go. And so don't forget that. And um, let that be your commission. Uh, in every sense, your lips have been touched uh, symbolically because you've, if you've come to know Jesus. And again, if you haven't, uh, I'm not trying to scare people, although I, if that worked, I would do it. Um, you don't know when you're going to die, and you don't know when you might have gone too far. 
And so, you know, now if you're wondering, am I a prodigal or a profligate, then you're a prodigal, right? Because profligates don't wonder if they're, you know, <laughs> the other thing. You see, they're, they keep spiraling down. Uh, and so people say, oh, how do I know? You wouldn't be worried about your, your state if you were profligate, if you're a non-believer, okay? And so if you're a prodigal, we all are. So just, you know, return to the Lord. Get back to where you belonged, as I said.